Hello, and welcome back to our third episode of OMG Omics. Our guest today is going to help reveal to you part of how you survived the pandemic, some of the secrets of lipid nanoparticles, and the secrets of his success, because he has learned how to make science work for him. Hey, Michael, thanks for being here today. You're our third guest on the OMG Omics podcast series, and you again have a diverse career background. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to your current position? Sure. Um, first, thank you so much for having me, and uh, um, I do appreciate it, and um, it's glad to be here. Um, first, um, my name is Michael. Uh, last name is Gyrgyz, and uh, it was, uh, um, I was born and raised in Egypt, and then I moved to the U.S. about 15 years ago, and uh, I stayed here in Virginia. I finished my bachelor's degree in pharmaceutical science, and then I got uh, my master's and a PhD at George Mason University. Uh, in chemistry and biochemistry in 2016, and then uh, moved to Georgetown University for um, a job in science, basically, and I ended up um, um, learning a lot about um, metabolomics and proteomics over there, and then um, I moved in in 2022, actually last year, to uh, join um, the lipid nanoparticles group here at George Mason University in the bioengineering department. Thank you. Can you maybe describe the focus of your research and what makes it so unique or important? Because this week's topic is liquid nanoparticles or LNPs. Sure, um, LNPs have, have attracted a lot of attention recently, especially with the pandemic, but it's actually a pretty um, a pretty old topic that people start talking about a long time ago. I would say about two decades ago. Um, so, um, what we are doing in our group um, in the bioengineering department, um, what we do is we have synthetic chemists to synthesize the ionizable lipids, which is a big component and a, and a very important component in lipid nanoparticles. And then we have some folks who actually formulate different formulations, different conditions, and uh, we have um, you know, a few people who are doing quality control, quality assurance, and then we have actually some people doing some animal testing. Um, just to make sure that the formulation was working efficiently and the potencies is about within the specifications and, you know, to see the, uh, whether the LMP is actually working or not. Can you explain to us how lipid nanoparticles work and why they're so important in everything that goes on with them? Absolutely. Um, lipid nanoparticles really revolutionized um, the way we think about medicine and the way we had many, many issues before and then and now we, we found some solutions. So uh, what, is, what are these um, lipid nanoparticles? So they are very, very simple. Um, they are small particles. They are nanometer in size. They are self-assembled, believe it or not. They compose uh, so many lipids. Um, mostly the most important one is ionizable lipid. They have the, uh, the core, uh, and then they have the lipid bilayer. They are very simple. Um, they are... Um, they form, they're formed by um, a very unique and intricate mixing system, depending, you know, um, focuses on microfluidics, fusion together. And then um, basically we have a bunch of lipids. Um, the ionizable lipids are very important. We have some helper lipids like DSPC, and then we have cholesterol. And then we have also something uh, called um, uh, pigylated lipids as well. 
So we basically mix the lipids in ethanol, and then we have the RNA or whatever um, in a cargo, because those lipid nanoparticles are basically like cargo for drug delivery system. That's biodefinition. So we mix those fluids in a very intricate, very, very um, reproducible way. Um, and then we form these small little particles. It starts off with ionizable lipids, basically the possibly charged ionizable, usually cationic lipids. They associate with the RNA or DNA, whatever negatively charged species that we put on. And then eventually the helper lipids start coming on to form the first layer, then followed by some other layers. This is a lipid bilayer. And then the pegylated or polyethylene glycolipids basically uh, partition itself um, the hydrophobic section inside and then the uh, hydrophilic section outside, and that helps with the solution. So what makes those lipid nanoparticles very unique is that they solved a lot of problems. Um, previously, um, we had some issues with drugs, RNA-based drugs, uh, peptide-based drugs. Those drugs can be hydrolyzed and destroyed by, uh, you know, nucleases or RNases, DNAs in, in the plasma. So we couldn't actually make it through um, the, all the barriers of any medication, you know, the, the medication had to go through. So um, with that said, um, having this cargo that can safely deliver the medication to the cell or through the cellular membrane to the cytoplasm, that was a great achievement. So you'll see a lot of application of this in RNA-based drugs. Um, you'll see some applications in DNA-based drugs. Uh, peptides and proteins can be also encapsulated with limited with limitations because of the nano size. We have a, a size of 60 to 80 nanometer um, size. And then we have also some smaller molecules, actually FDA approved of, of a few drugs actually that can be encapsulated into those small particles and delivered to different um, different organs. Um, that's that's really the, 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 the pivotal role of lipid nanoparticles. It's, it's a cargo that can deliver drugs to various parts and through the, the, the lipid bilayer of the cellular membrane. So. so you started to tell me a little bit that I was thinking a question up on um, while you were talking. So you've told me a little bit about the real world applications and some of the successes, but you said this is in FDA approval mode or there are drugs that are being used in this mode? Oh, absolutely. Um, so talking about encapsulating uh, lipid nanoparticles with messenger RNA, uh, which is very unique and of course saved us from, uh, from this uh, difficult time in the pandemic with COVID-19. So we have Moderna and Pfizer jumping in with their research, been there for you know, more than two decades. So basically we, um, we encapsulated messenger RNA uh, into those lipid bilayers or lipid nanoparticles. And eventually we delivered this to various cells. And then, it, you know, once the RNA is inside the cytoplasm, so the lipid nanoparticles basically inject the RNA or the content through a process called endocytosis. That's what at least believe at this point. And then once what's inside the cy cytoplasm, um, you know, the, the whole process starts and then you get the protein translation process through the ribosome, and then you, you start generating proteins, the, the immune cells start looking at this protein as an awkward protein that we don't really know what it is, and then we start generating uh, memory cells and, and B cells and T cells to kill this, and this is how you get your immunity. 
this is this is uh, this is a huge success from Moderna and Pfizer and actually saved this. There are some other uh, very successful examples uh, where we're using short interfering RNA as well. Uh, um, there's a Ompatro. It's a it's a drug. It's actually a commercially available drug where they're manufacturing short infer interfering RNA inside lipid networks, and they deliver this to uh, to treat certain like uh, hereditary disease that um, comes um, comes along, and it's very rare an orphan disease. Um, so this is an example where we we're hacking those lipid nanoparticles with a short interferon RNA, and then we control the gene expression through this process. There are also some examples where we're putting some drugs that are very difficult to be um, solubilized. They're not water soluble. They're not very friendly. Uh, and some of these examples are um, some of the anti-cancer drugs. Um, just out of the top of my hand, there's uh, um, a drug um, that that I can remember called Clusig. The Clusig is actually um, uh, a commercially available drug to treat leukemia and some other uh, certain types of leukemias and other diseases. So uh, we can actually bypass the solubility issue in a pharmaceutical uh, production. And then we can actually deliver this drug to the places where it needs the most. Also, there are also some drugs where we have a much smaller molecules actually manufactured in lipid nanoparticles, like a drug called doxy, which is just a regular doxy, doxycycline. Doxycycline is very famous um, drug, like antibiotic, you get when you have like some kind of tooth infection or something, just kind of uh, kill bacteria by basically lowering the uh, uh, protein expression. But what happened is when they start formulating this in some of the uh, lipid nanoparticles, it starts actually being very helpful in some types of cancer. Um, another drug that I could think about is called Onivide. Onivide is actually also one of those drugs that I actually used uh, heavily in a solid tumors to deliver uh, anti-cancer medications into these solid tumors. So there is a lot of applications that we can think about. Uh, using lipid nanoparticles. That's why we're so excited and we're so happy to um, to be part of this uh, revolution in the world of medicine. You know, I've been a scientist for a few years now and, and making it through the pandemic, I'm not sure I heard that good of an explanation of the mRNA delivery um, until you did this just now. You have a future, I think, in continuing to explain some of these things to the masses. I really love it. Um, it's uh, it's really a great, our group is really um, very, very active and, uh, you know, developing the technology and George Mason University is one of the pioneers in nanotechnology, and uh, Dr. Mike Page is actually uh, my supervisor. He's really amazing in this, and is uh, like in the center of molecular engineering where I work too. It's um, it's it's just wonderful to work with those people and uh, watch the progress of how we can make the difference and make the change in the world. So yeah, we're so happy, and I'm so proud. That's fantastic. I mean, these are these are why I love having these talks and, and being able to engage with scientists. I can tell that you have extreme passion and tenacity for the work that you do. Can you maybe relay one of your OMG moments um, as it as you became a scientist and as you started to, to become curious? 
Um, my biggest OMG moment, which I really love about, you know, those podcasts, like the OMG, like, I call it really an, an aha moment, more like, oh my God moment. But uh, it is, uh, it is really, um, really interesting. So uh, I think the biggest moment that really uh, changed me uh, personally when, um, when I really, I think, like, uh, helped and uh, really contributed greatly in uh, identifying an unknown biomarker from um, exposure to radiation that was really mysterious and uh, we couldn't really find any matching of this molecule uh, based on the mass spec uh, or mass spec that we obtained. We didn't have any, any information. It was almost impossible to really figure this out. But I worked for like two or three months and I tried to propose a structure to this based on a fragmentation pattern and then I uh, basically um, ended up taking this to my supervisor. It's like, hey, I mean, this is this is what I think it is. And if you want to invest a little bit more and try to get a synthetic chemist to synthesize this molecule and, and uh, prove what I'm saying is right, that would be it. Like, we got a very a brand new biomarker. So um, they kind of took my word for it, and then uh, we got it synthesized. And uh, the moment um, I probably my like I was almost like skip hard beats, you know, very, didn't sleep the night before, worried about it. And then the moment it went through the machine and I see the same fragmentation, same retention time, that's my molecule exactly the same, matching the biological samples. I just feel that I'm on top of the world, you know. It, it's it's my oh my God moment. I just made it. Um, you know, it's, it's just amazing. And it's actually highlighting how mass spectrometry is so crucial in identification and characterization of various molecules, biological molecules, it helps us a lot really understand a lot about this, about the you know the pathways, about you know, biological entities and what's going on inside the cells. Knowledge is power, and this is the part of mass spectrometry. So, how many types of mass spectrometry have you done over the years? I assume that was GCMS, and how many other experiences have you had with different methodologies? I've done a lot of LCMS as well, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. Um, I've done, um, so my, my ed- education was in, in basically again, since it's like making small molecules. And then um, when I got some training on mass spectrometry, I started to love it even more and more. I did a lot of metabolomics and proteomics. So uh, that about 23 publications and it's, it's, it's really a very interesting field and I'm so honored and proud to be part of this field. So you have a lot of tools at your disposal and you have a lot of experience with mass spec. So why is it so critical for LNP characterization? And what is your favorite way that you've characterized LNPs? Well, this is really a very, very important question. Very good question, actually. So, um, so how is it that mass spec is very important to us? Um, at least our LMP folks. Um, first of all, um, it's a self-assembly process. So many things could happen along the way. If the microfluidics are not right, if the buffer is not right, a lot of things could happen. RNA, as robust as it, it may look, um, it also can degrade, and we might have some impurities. Therefore, characterization of the starting material is very crucial. And that's why FDA has very strict rules when it gets to impurities and characterizing what these are and knowing what the concentration is 
So it's it's a multi-pronged process. So first of all, we have some study material that you need to take care of. We have lipids that we synthesize in house. We have lipids that we we actually we insource from some other companies that we want to make sure they meet the specification of the FDA. We have the mRNA production, which we want to make sure that it has enough purity to qualify for the lipid nanoparticles, because these are going to be in humans. So we have to, to worry about this, but the road is not always very, um, you know, very, you know, nice and smooth. You know, we have some impurities. Those impurities are very important. Like we need to know what these are, and we need to know how much they are. So like for lipids, for example, we see some degradation. Lipids love to degrade eventually. They're very fragile. They're hydrolyzed because some of these uh, lipids have some ester functionalities, which are easy to hydrolyze eventually. The biggest problem that we have in lipids is oxidation. Lipids are magnets to oxygen. They pick up oxygen from the nitrogen side, they pick up oxygen on the double bond, even on a just a CH2 or CH, they pick up very nice oxygen, become oxidized. The million dollar question is, where is the oxidation happening? Is it on the tail end of the lipids? Is it on a connecting uh, portion of the lipid? Is it on a head, which is so crucial during the formulation, the cationic head of this lipid? So understanding all of this is going to help us make the right decision about whether or not these study materials qualify for this. Once we have the formulation, we're not, we're not done yet. Once we formulate your LMPs, now we have another question. So what happens if we leave this LMP with this vaccine on a table at room temperature for a couple of hours? So would this be detrimental to the efficacy and potency? So we have to study stability, storage conditions. It's a big deal. We had a massive, massive issue when we had a Pfizer stuck, you know, got, got, got approved like back in late 2020, when we have to store it in negative 80, but not negative 80 degrees Celsius store, you know, refrigerators, and we don't have those all over the place. Of course, we figured it out, but it was a big ordeal. So how do I make my formulation very stable? And what happened if this doesn't, doesn't you know, that it, it doesn't exist, that we don't have these conditions in African countries where it's super hot, we don't have the refrigerators. So we study the degradation product. We, we actually um, model the degradation and the, we, we, we call it forced degradation studies. So we work on this from the lipid side, studying material from the formulation side after we're all said and done and for the RNA. So we have to study all of this. We screen for everything. We wanna make sure the sequence was right. We wanna make sure that the starting material was right. We want to make sure that even after the formulation is done, the conditions of the formulation didn't impact the components that we have. So this is all the quality control and quality assurance. And this is um, as, as simple as, as it could be, but it's really uh, it, it's a very important aspect of liquid nanoparticles. Um, and this is where we need a whole lot of you know capable instrumentation to, to be able to answer our questions. Because you know, not every you know, instant can answer these questions. Thank you so much. That was, again, a really clear-cut way of explaining this. Um, I just want to keep talking to you more and more and more on all of this. So something else that kind of came to mind here, you've been talking about the tools that go into the work that you do. 
But tools can be more than just instruments. So what about the people, the support, the collaborations that you utilize and that have helped you to be successful here? So uh, one of the things that actually helped us a lot to be successful, got us, got us where we are now, is how we communicate together. Uh, we meet on a regular basis. We talk to each other. And um, we have some open channels a lot just within our group. Now, talking about collaboration, which is really very crucial here, uh, because not every person is an expert in everything. It's like you, you're going to be an expert in one aspect, but you're not going to know everything. So um, that's why we have the lines of com communications with a lot of collaborators all over for lipid nanoparticles specifically. So, for example, um, I have um, Dr. Dan Fabris from. Uh, from the University of Connecticut actually helping us a lot, do a lot of method development in using mass spec and characterizing messenger RNA. He has a wonderful team of people. Um, just remember uh, Daniele and Tom who were actually working with me, were working with me, uh, running samples and acquiring you know, on the instruments and teaching me how to do a whole lot. And I was visiting them a few weeks ago. So um, also, I would, I would say that having some partnership with the industry, like our you know, collaboration with Broker Scientific, really helped us a lot kind of develop this and advance more because it gave us the capabilities that we didn't have. Uh, for, I just want to mention that um, there are a lot that you know, Broker Scientific and some industrial uh, partners can actually provide that we really don't have in academia. And uh, I would say, like, um, Erica Forsberg uh, and, uh, and Matt Albano was really very um, supportive along the way. And I can't really imagine uh, making that much progress in characterizing lipids and degradation products without them kind of jumping in and uh, helping and supporting uh, in the whole process. So to maybe transition a little bit on how science works for you, because I think we're, we're getting to that point where you're telling us how you've gotten to, um, you know, the point you're at in your research. So you've had a lot of different career experiences. You've worked a lot of different places. Have you always been able to channel your passion for science, no matter the job or the question? Is it just mass spec? Is it anything science? Tell us a little more about how you stay curious. I think after I, I finished my uh, bachelor's degree, I think, you know, we got together in the graduation party. I mean, I got some of my colleagues asking this question and saying, so like, what are you going to do next? And then <laughs> I said, like, um, I don't believe this is the end. I feel like this is just the beginning. <laughs> like, there's a lot more that I need to be doing, so. Um, throughout the, the years, I joined uh, the patent office where I started to be more and more curious. Uh, I worked as a patent examiner for three years, and that really got me so interested in science. And um, I started kind of, you know, slowly deciding that this is what I want to do. And uh, I started, you know, thinking about science. And um, in the patent office, you learn a lot about the laws and the rules and regulations, and you learn a lot about how to write a piece of art. It's, you just, it's not just, a, you know, you're writing a written opinion, talking to the applicant. It's more like you're writing a convincing argument more than, more than just writing a response. So that really got me into, it's like, this is how science should be. 
I need to convince you through my words that this is the way it is. And my words have to be based on facts. And I found a lot of passion to this because I, I really, I love to write and that helped me a lot along the way. Um, moving forward to my master's PhD, you know, you write a lot of proposals and you write, you know, defense. And that's like my dissertation is like 500 pages long, lots of stuff. And then, you know, moving to, you know, writing papers um, and, and then writing proposals and grants and that. So I find this passion everywhere I go. However, I also still need to kind of jump in the lab on a bench and start kind of doing something by my hand a little bit more. So um, it's been always really, uh, you know, it's been always my, the desire of my heart to do something in science that nobody else could do. And I wanted to do this really eagerly. And I, I'm, I'm so grateful to the opportunities that I had in my life. As a PI, you're telling me that you still go into the bench, you still sit in front of the instrument, and you make time for this in your daily rigmarole. That's impressive. Tell me a little bit more about why you stay so connected in the lab and with the instrumentation. First of all, there's a lot more to learn about instruments. <laughs> so it's not just like, you know, yeah, I know it all. Like, like no, nah, it doesn't work this way. So I love to work on, you know, on the instrument. I like to work on a problem by myself. And this is really what got me into science. That I see a problem and I work on it. And I try to focus and filter everything else outside, um, outside of my focus and my brain. And then I try to focus on this. Uh, one of the things that I... I love to do by myself uh, sometimes is that I need, when I train some of my students, graduate students or undergraduate students, I love to sit with them and go over the principles, go over the concept first. And then I teach them all the ins and outs so that they have to be careful how to do this. You know? If we don't start from the younger generation and teach them exactly how things are, they're not going to grow as future scientists. Eventually, we're not staying here forever. And we have to pass on this knowledge to other people. And the younger generation is really a good soil and good material that you can actually uh, grow in, in an, and inflame science passion in them. And these are the people who are going to be future leaders and future scientists. I remember one of my students, um, Rachel Harden, um, she um, she she walked in. She was like she was um, she wasn't really interested in chemistry. And one time she came to me and she said, "I would like to work in a lab with you. Maybe I want to see what you're doing." She volunteered in the lab for almost a year. And uh, I'm going to tell you, Rachel is now got a PhD in organic chemistry, and she is a big um, patent examiner in the United States Patent Trademark Office with a PhD in chemistry. So, and she was a biology major. So, you know, things like that would me make me like like I have a scientist in here. I need a scientist. They have a lot of passion, and uh, this is just the you know the case with all my students. I love to work hands on, teach and go over the principles with them, uh, because they're not going to find this in any textbook. The troubleshooting of the instrument. Tuning the instrument to get what you need out of this instrument it doesn't really matter how fancy or advanced you are. But if you really know the principles, you can get through it and you can get the best out of what you have. 
I can tell that academia is sitting really well with you. And and I think for you to hold on to that, you know, your optimism is absolutely coming through. And I really admire your commitment, Michael. But I have a, one last question for you today. So how far would you go to fund yourself and to keep your science going? Would you live a minimalist existence in a treehouse? You could go out into the Virginia woods. You hope to win the lottery and you could take that money and funnel it back into your science. What do you think? What would you be willing to do to make sure that you can continue doing science? Well, you know, winning a lottery is always an option, but if you can do it, good luck with that. So uh, it's it's really a very, uh, very interesting question. So what are we going to do around this? Um, a part of nature, my nature, is to love to compete. And uh, this is where academia fits a little bit better for me. Um, I like to compete. I like to, you know, like convincing arguments with bodies. So, um, you know, winning a lottery, having some funding from this, that would be great if we have it. Well, if we don't have it, I would say I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'll keep trying to propose something here and there. Um, you know, don't get me wrong, industry is, is really um, a very good field to be in. And that's why you see a whole lot of influx of people moving from academia to industry. Part of it because because of the inherent problem that we have in industry, by the way, that we, industry doesn't have well-qualified trained personnel and they can't, they don't have the time or the resources to train somebody from scratch. So that's why they would prefer to get a trained academic person to take over, for example, mass spectrometry or a, mass, a very well-advanced mass spectrometer. So they they prefer this, um, you know. However, you know, you know, in academia, you, you get to learn along the way because you do have time to learn and develop your skills. You don't have that much time in industry, so that's why you know you get a whole lot of people going from academia to industry. Now, um, is industry great? Yeah, sure. You know, it's, it's because of industry we we've been through the pandemic and a bunch of other diseases. So we owe the industry a lot. But academia, on the other hand, seems to be more relaxed. Um, they got more time. They don't have as many resources. But if we have the resources, life will be easier. Thank you so much, Michael. I really enjoyed talking with you today. And I'm so grateful that you made the time to, to share your experiences and give us some of your wisdom, which is really good. One of the things that I like to tell my students, when they, you know, there are so many days when you walk out and you have this moment of, you know, you're desperate, you're just kind of tired and it's nothing is working. So I always tell my student this, um, no matter how bad things are, you can always make it better. No matter how bad it is, tomorrow's gonna be better. You can always make it better on yourself, on the surrounding, your environment, your family, your coworker, your colleagues. So don't give up, you're gonna always make it better no matter how bad this is. So, I think your colleagues, your students, and all of the people that you work with are really lucky to have you. And thanks once again for being with us today. Thank you so much. I really am so grateful. And thanks for having me. It's such a great honor. Thanks a lot.
Michael gave us such a great summary of all of the work that he does and all of his collaboration. But I think once again, we need to help him a little bit. So what do you think he should do for a competition to earn some extra money to make sure that his science keeps going? I'll put a few comments in the comment section below and maybe you guys can like them, vote them and get us going. Hot dog eating competition, ax throwing, we'll come up with something for him. 